friends, a formal welcome to the archaeological claim to Jerusalem. This round of applause, friends, for the archaeological claim to Jerusalem. You guys are here. I'm here. We're here together. This is going to be an amazing evening. You picked the right thing to do on a Tuesday night. Um, first, a thank to our sponsors, Deborah and Joel. Thank you so much for helping sponsor tonight's event. Appreciate it. Um, so something that is very important is a topic of tonight's class. You know, there's been a lot of talk lately about the Jewish claim to the Holy Land. And for some reason, it seems to be contested. The legitimacy of Israel to exist, the legitimacy of Jews to have a Jewish state seems to still be part of the conversation. Is, is there a right? Is there not a right? And I think, and I'm just telling you, sharing with you something that my teacher told me, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a blessed memory. The Rebbe said very often that one of the, th one of the mistakes that we make is when we limit the Jewish claim to the land uh, to 1948 of the common era, of uh, 1948 of our, of our years. To say that, that, that Israel began in 1948 does us a disservice because, well, what happened before? Who'd you get the land from in 1948, right? Or 1967. So what we need to do is go back to the other 1948. And you're wondering, what other 1948? 1948 of the Jewish years, you know, we're year 5781. So in 1948 of the Jewish years, something important happened, which is the birth of Abraham. Abraham of like... Abraham and Sarah fame. So Abraham was born in 1948 of the Jewish years, 1948 from creation. And Abraham, of course, is the one to whom God promises the land. And ever since, there's a Jewish connection to the land. So the Jewish connection to the land goes back a long time. But we live in a time where no one wants to hear theories and no one wants to hear, you know, uh, what this guy says, what that one says. Everyone says, show me the science. Am I right? Everyone's into science. Show me the science. Show me the evidence. What do we got? Let's see what, what we have. Facts on the ground. Let's look at the science. So tonight, we're going to look at the science. We're going to literally look at the science. What happens when you dig under the holy city of Jerusalem? What do you find? Well, here's, here's the short answer. Spoiler alert. I, I know you all read the title. You literally signed up for it. It's called the Jewish, sorry, the archaeological claim to Jerusalem. What we're going to do is establish incredible Jewish connections to the Holy Land, to the Holy City of Jerusalem, and thus strengthen our connection with our ancient homeland um, for ourselves. And it, it'll be cool to have uh, some tidbits of info that you can share with those that may, be, that may find it of interest as well. Um, we have the incredible good fortune of welcoming back the Jewish Indiana Jones, a good friend, a fellow Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Avram Stolik, from Florida, um, who will be sharing the about the incredible archaeological finds. We had Rabbi Stolik last year, right around this time of year, talk about the, um, the underground secrets of the Temple Mount. That was more about the temple and all the stuff that went on underneath the temple area. This will be about Jerusalem, specifically about the Jewish claim, the Jewish connection to the homeland. It is also appropriate that we have this conversation this time of year, because as many of you may know, um, uh, in a few days, we will mark the ninth day of the month of Av, which is the day in our history in which both of the holy temples were destroyed. The first temple by the Babylonians, the second temple by the Romans in the year 69. And ever since, 
We've been a nation that has kind of been wandering. Have Torah, we'll travel. And even throughout our travels, we've never lost the connection with our homeland. Today, we have a Jewish renaissance in our homeland. But throughout our history, throughout the, this long and bitter exile, we've never lost our connection in our hearts, in our mind, in our souls, in our prayer, in our studies with our homeland. So tonight, we go back in time. We unearth, we dig up the ground, and we unearth the artifacts that connect us and transport us back in time to our ancient homeland and forge a connection in our lives today with the promised land. So friends, without further ado, please give a warm virtual Zoom welcome to Rabbi Stulik, the Jewish Indiana Jones. All right, good evening. Thank you. Can you all hear me? Coming through loud and clear? Okay, great. All right, let me, um, let me spotlight myself. Here we go. So uh, it's good to be back. Um, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Ari, for inviting me again to your wonderful community. And you, you couldn't have picked a better time to discuss Jerusalem when the, this is the week uh, known as the period of the nine days when we commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem and both the first and second temple, <clears throat> uh, culminating this coming Sunday and the ninth day above. So as uh, Rabbi Ari mentioned, it's important that uh, we know the facts because there has been so much misinformation going around, especially as of late <clears throat> with social media out of control. Uh, we've, uh, we've all seen the, uh, the, the recent conflict in Gaza and there's, there's been a lot of misinformation going around and it's important that we arm ourselves with the facts on the ground and underground. Now that's what we're gonna to do tonight. We're gonna, to, uh, as the, <clears throat> the, 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 the title of our presentation, the archeological claim to Jerusalem, I'm gonna share my screen now and we are going to, uh, it's gonna be PowerPoint based and we're going to see uh, images, diagrams, uh, maps, uh, some short video clips and uh, it, the archeological claim to Jerusalem, fascinating discoveries validate the biblical history of Jerusalem. So let's begin with the lecture outline. We are going to begin by talking about the delegitimization of Israel as a land with a Jewish and biblical history. Following that, we're going to introduce a group of people known as the biblical minimalists. Um, and we're gonna see this may be an extreme group, but it has uh, become more mainstream in a certain period of time. Following that, we're going to introduce one of the top 10 biblical archeological discoveries of all time, and that's the Tel Dan Stila, and we're gonna see why that is so important. Then we're going to introduce Professor Israel Finkelstein, who was the head of the Department of Archeology span at Tel Aviv University, and we'll talk about his low chronology theory. Following that, uh, the archeologist, very prominent archeologist, Elat Mazar, who is known as the queen of archeology span in Israel. Unfortunately, she just passed away recently from a, an illness that she had battled in her, at a young age, uh, in, in her 60s. 
and we're going to talk about her discovery. Uh, one of the great, one of her great discoveries of what she believes is King David's palace, and we're going to conclude with the bulla, which is a direct link to the Bible. This is going to be a fascinating presentation, and uh, we have a lot to cover. Let's get right into it. We begin with a new front in the war against Israel. Ever since Israel was established as a modern state in 1948, uh, as uh, Rabbi Ari pointed out, we have two different 1948s, but we're talking about the modern one. Uh, Israel has been at the military front um, in, I mean, until today, we've seen the, the conflict in Gaza. There are missiles pointed at Israel from every direction. Um, it's also been, there's a, at the econ, on the economic front, there has been uh, the, I'm sure you're familiar with the term BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, something that we hear all the time, something that Israel has to battle uh, those against who want to ruin it economically. But then there's an equally dangerous front against Israel, and that's the academic front, and we should not underestimate this battle. And as the New York Times puts it, if you upend historic King David, you can delegitimize modern Israel. In effect, what you're doing is you're pulling out the rug from underneath the people living in Israel, and you're saying, what right do you have to live in this land? As Helen Thomas infamously said about the Jews in Israel, get the heck out of Palestine and go back to Poland, Germany, and everywhere else you came from. And unfortunately, this idea even is becoming um, popular within Israel itself, uh, where uh, people are questioning the legitimacy of their right to their historic right to the land. So we have biblical history is under attack. Here's a quote from the Washington Post that makes the following statement, quote, in recent decades, the most accepted view has been that the Bible is more myth than history, particularly its books recounting events that happened centuries earlier, like those relating to David. Now, this is not a tabloid. This is a mainstream newspaper in the U.S. that states what seems to be the obvious. <clears throat> the Bible is more myth than history. Is that so? We shall see. Then we have the Palestinian revisionism. And there is, uh, there's, there, there's a claim that, that the Jewish history and biblical history is a Zionist idea to justify dispossessing Palestinians. Here's a quote from a Palestinian professor of archeology. span And there are many, many quotes emanating from the Middle East, one more colorful than the next. Here's just one sample and it's, he says like this, quote, the link between the historical evidence and the biblical narration written much later is largely missing. There's a kind of a fiction about the 10th century before the common era. They try to link whatever they find to the biblical narration. They have a button and they want to make a suit out of it. And then of course you have the uh, infamous UNESCO resolution on Jerusalem that took place in October of 2016 where the UNESCO is an official arm of the UN uh, stands for United Nations Educational, Social, and Cultural Organization. Uh, the Temple Mount is actually one of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And, and what happened was during this resolution, 
they were they made no mention of any Jewish historic connection to Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, for example, was referred to as the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Al-Haram, Al-Sharif, and its surroundings. There was no mention of the Western Wall or of any Jewish historic connection to Jerusalem. It was simply stripped of a Jewish connection. Of course, uh, this was roundly condemned, but nevertheless, this is coming from an official arm, uh, a cultural arm of the United Nations. Media headlines, Time Magazine, Archaeology in Jerusalem, Digging Up Trouble. I love that one. CBS 60 Minute did a special, Can Archaeology Prove the Bible? And then uh, researchers dig up controversy in Jerusalem. So now we'll get, we'll, we will introduce uh, the biblical minimalists. And this is a group of people who are centered in Europe primarily, and it's called the Copenhagen School of Theology. The main premise of this school of theology is that the biblical narrative is a myth. It's simply a myth. It's no different than the King Arthur story. So it, everything you learned in Hebrew school about the Bible is simply a myth. This is what they, this is what, this is what they claim. And, and the reason why it's being taught in, in uh, its mandatory teaching in Israeli high school it's because it's a bolster to political Zionism. The main protagonists of this uh, school of thought are these two individuals, Thomas Thompson hails from the United States and Niels Peter Lemke is a Danish scholar. <clears throat> now, Thomas Thompson wrote a book um, about the 10th century before the common era. The name of the title of the book is called, get this, The Mythic Past, Biblical Archeology span and the Myth of Israel. And this is what he writes about the 10th century. BCE, quote, there is no evidence of a united monarchy, no evidence of a capital in Jerusalem or of any coherent unified political force that dominated Western Palestine, let alone an empire besides the legends described. We do not have evidence for the existence of kings named Saul, David, or Solomon, nor do we have any evidence for any temple in Jerusalem at this early period. Now notice he doesn't mention the second temple because the second temple is post-biblical. But anything that appears in the Bible is the way he puts it in short. The Bible is not a history of anyone's past. Now, this is an idea that was uh, it, it began to gain steam throughout the 1970s and the 1980s. It was even celebrated by the media. It, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was like finally someone coming along and shattering a myth. And uh, it was celebrated until it came to a screeching halt in 1993. See, that was the year that the Tel Dan stele was discovered in Israel. So let me give you first a little uh, intro into this inscription. Uh, let me move back for a moment, and we'll get to that in a, we'll get to that in a moment. So what happened was... Uh, Otherwise, just press pound to continue. I'm sorry, I'm just going to put everybody on mute. Please enter the meeting password followed by pound. You all. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, so uh, there was a there. There's a professor of archaeology from Hebrew University. His name is Abraham Biran, and he's conducting a dig, an excavation in the northern part of Israel. Uh, just to get a give me a thumbs up. Who here has been to uh, the uh, Tel Dan 
the Tel Dan Nature Preserve up in the northern part of Israel, uh, but the Banyas Waterfall up in the north, not close to the Lebanese border. Has anybody been to that part of Israel? I see one hand up, two. Okay, some of you have been there, that's wonderful. Um, that's great, it's a beautiful part of the country. Um, rent, not too far from that waterfall, there's, a, there's an area called Tel Dan Nature Preserve. Near the Tel Dan Nature Preserve, it's called Tel Dan. Does anybody know what Tel means? Tel, like in Tel Aviv, right? Tel means a hill or a mound. Um, so Tel Aviv translates into Spring Hill. Uh, Tel Dan was a hill where the tribe of Dan, which is one of the 12 tribes, where that's where they lived. And uh, this professor, this archaeologist, was conducting an excavation in this area. Now, uh, the surveyor of this excavation is a woman by the name of Gila Cook. And she's about to wrap up things for the day when she notices under, un, you know, coming, cropping up from the ground underneath her feet, there was a stone that caught her attention because the stone had an inscription on it. And you know, the most valuable thing for an archaeologist to find is not coins, not, not, not uh, jewelry, but rather inscriptions, because inscriptions tells us about something in the past. I don't know if you've been following the news, but just yesterday it was announced that a, an, a writing on an ancient pottery shard dating back to pre-King David, pre-King David, from the times of the judges, uh, and it had the name of a judge from the, uh, who was known as Gideon, famous judge, but his, his other name was Yerubal. And the name on that chart said Yerubal, which is fascinating, although we don't know for sure it actually, if this actually referred to him, but it date, does date back to his time period. So that's why inscriptions are so important. So the, the, she immediately calls the, the archeologist in charge, Professor Biran, and says, look, let's, look what I found. And together they, they, they unearth this stela. And this stela looks like this. It's, uh, it's known as the Teldan Stila. A stila means a uh, sort of a monument, and it was meant to be a victory monument. As you can see here, it was broken up here. It's broken up in two pieces. They put it together. And the, um, the area that it's written in Aramaic, it was written by an, by an Aramean king. Now, the Arameans were situated in roughly what today is modern day Syria. Uh, the, the Arameans were like arch enemies of the Jews during that time period. And this Aramean king, which is most likely the King Hazael, erects a, a victory monument in which he describes oh, so frustrating. certain battles that he's had with he's had he's had with um, with with many kings, uh, with different various kings. And among those names of those kings, he mentions some of the Jewish kings he had battle with. And this is where it gets interesting because, as you see here. This is the original, which can be found in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Uh, this is here, the, the deciphering. You can see, don't try to read this unless you can we read it. We can't see it. It's not visible. There, thank you. Can everybody see it? Give me a thumbs up. Okay, great, excellent. Um, I'm not sure why people, um, we tried to mute everyone, but it doesn't seem to work. Okay, um, anyway. So, so, um, 
here it is highlighted. Uh, the highlighted here in yellow is the incredible words that say uh, house of David. Now, the reason why uh, this is so significant is because let's read what it actually says. It says the king is bragging that I killed Ahaziahu, the son of Yoram, king of the house of David. Now, think about this for a moment. This is a king who lived about 150 years after King David's time period. And yet he is bragging that he had defeated a Jewish king who is a successor to King David 150 years later, a Judean king whose name was Ahaziahu, the son of Yoram, who is one of the kings mentioned in the Bible. And he describes him as a king who hails from the house of David. Now, this is the what's so significant about this. This is the first time that King David's name was found outside of the Bible. Not only is King David validated as a historic being, but it was described as the house of David. In other words, that there was a Davidic, Davidic dynasty. Let's take, uh, take a look at this short video clip here uh, about the Teldon Stila. And the greatest testament to David's importance and as yet the most tangible clue that David was a real human made of flesh and blood comes from an enemy king who records a victory over David's descendants on a piece of stone called the Tel Don Stella. The Tel Don Stella is a monumental stone inscription incised with letters. It is written in Aramaic put up by an Aramaic king who claims that he has conquered 70 cities. And he is setting up this particular stela to commemorate this occasion. One of the conquests he claims shook biblical archeology span to its core. The six letters say Bet David. There's the Bet and the Yud the Taf, the Dalit, the Vav, and then again the Dalit, Bet David. Between every other words in this inscription, there is a very clear dot. But between these two words, Bet and David, there is no dot, which has been interpreted as meaning that this was a concept, even though it was made up of two words. These words, Viet David, when translated into English, read House of David. This is the first time the House of David, or even the name David, has been found in a non-biblical source. Pretty fascinating. Now, how do you think the minimalist, the biblical minimalist, reacted to the discovery of the Teldon Stella? Well, I'm going to give you some... Uh, uh, some examples of what they have used to suggest as possible uh, renderings of that inscription. Uh, and I'll let you be the judge. So the first, the first possible suggestion that they made was that Beit David is simply a name of a place. So for example, uh, you probably are familiar with some places in Israel that begins with the word Bet, as in Bethlehem, you know, Bethlehem, King David's birthplace. Uh, Bet Shemesh, Bet Kel, there are plenty of names that begin with the Bet. Well, they suggest that there is, they, the king killed a, a king who came from 
a, a name of a, a city called Bet David. Now, how, have you ever heard of a place called Bet David? Well, neither have I, but this was the suggestion. Another suggestion that was put forth is, get this, it gets better. That when you read Bet David, and David is written Dalad Vav Dal without the vowels, it can spell another Hebrew word, and that is Beit Dod, which can be either uh, beloved, as in Lachad Dodi from the Friday night uh, prayer service, or uncle. So the king is bragging that he killed a Jewish king from the house of his uncle. Another suggestion, it gets more loony. Beit David is actually, the Dalit Vav Dalit is Beit Dude. Well, not as in Hey Dude, but as in Beit Tut, which is a, a Greek temple. Now, don't ask me what a Greek temple is doing in Jerusalem, or actually doing in Israel, about 150 years after King David's period. Now, according to Thompson, the, the uh, biblical minimalist, he says that Beit is not a dynasty, rather it's a house. Now, Beit could mean dynasty, and it could mean house, depending on the context. The way he puts it was like this, quote, there was once a house, and the name of this house was the house of David. When none of this was being accepted by any mainstream scholar, they finally pulled their last card. And I'm not making this up. They still claim today that the inscription is a forgery, that uh, Avraham Biran had forged this inscription, had it inserted into the ground only to unearth evidence of King David's existence. The good news is that these extremists have been marginalized. They are not taken seriously by any mainstream scholar. Today, most scholars are in agreement that all of the biblical uh, characters mentioned in the Bible were historic, or at least uh, beginning with, the, with King David's time period. And uh, these people have simply been marginalized. But now we're going to introduce another form of revisionism this one perhaps is more dangerous because it has become more mainstream. This is an idea that has been popularized by a very well-known archeologist from the Tel Aviv University and his name is Israel Finkelstein. You may have seen him in the media. He's become the new darling of the media. Uh, he is the go-to person anytime an archeological discovery is made with any connection to the Bible. Now he wrote a book in the year 2000 the name of the book is The Bible Unearthed. The main premise of this book is that there, are, there is no archaeological evidence to support the, exist, the biblical history. But wait a minute. But what, what about the Tel Don Stella? Doesn't that conclusively prove that King David existed? So he says, yes. No, he concedes that King David and King Solomon and all of the other biblical characters did in fact exist. But here's the catch, my friends. The way he puts it is that King David and Solomon were, quote, hill country chieftains. Jerusalem was nothing more than a poor, small tribal village. So when the Bible talks about King David presiding over an empire <clears throat> from, from Damascus through the Negev, uh, this is what he terms political propaganda. Now, who would come up with these political propaganda? So according to Finkelstein and uh, those who subscribe to this theory, 
this um, this this originates in in the year in the seventh century before the Common Era. Now, this is about two hundred years after King David's time period, and you probably are familiar with the fact that at some point in time after King Solomon's time period, the kingdom of Israel split, and you it was it was divided. You had the northern Israelite kingdom centered in Samaria, and the southern Judean kingdom centered in Jerusalem. These two kingdoms did not really get along very well. There was constant strife between them. And at some point in time, according to Finkelstein, these, uh, the Judean kingdom wanted to bolster their position vis-a-vis -vis the Israelite kingdom. So they came up with these, they concocted and fabricated this incredible narrative about their past, uh, which according to Finkelstein is uh, highly uh, exaggerated. And they came up with it and they said, you know who our, for our, 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 you know who our forefathers were? Do you know who uh, the, uh, the kings of Judea were? We had the wisest, the mightiest, the most powerful, um, the wealthiest kings of all time. And what do you have to show? So it was essentially political propaganda, according to Finkelstein. So according to that, this theory, Jerusalem was nothing more than, King David was like a Bedouin chief with a ragtag uh, tribe of just a, a, a few hundred uh, Bedouins in, in a small cow town called Jerusalem. And then Finkelstein introduces what is the most, one of the most controversial aspects of biblical archaeology, and that's his low chronology theory. Uh, low chronology essentially means the, it was, it was generally believed by most scholars that about uh, 1000 BCE, which is 3000 years ago, uh, people be, were developed enough to begin to build uh, monumental building projects. Prior to that point, which we call the Iron Age 2A, uh, people lived in primitive, primitive dwellings. Everything changed around this time period uh, belonging to King David. <clears throat> and that's why King Solomon was able to build uh, this magnificent uh, first temple. According to Finkelstein, he moves that time period up by about a century. So not until the ninth century did this period develop where people began to build monumental uh, structures. And according to this theory, if you subscribe to this theory, uh, none of the stories about King David uh, presiding over this empire just uh, makes sense. And, and neither does King Solomon's magnificent first temple uh, have any validity as well. So this is essentially the, the, the theory that's out there. And uh, this has now become more and more mainstream. Uh, and unfortunately, it, is a, um, it has become uh, part of the, uh, it, this is the, the new revisionism about uh, Israel's history and Israel's biblical history. So we search for clues for King David in Jerusalem, the focus is on the United Monarchy. When we say United Monarchy, referring to the period of time when the kingdom was united, meaning the kingdom of King David and his son, King Solomon. And the reason is because pre-King David and King Solomon is very difficult to prove. As I pointed out earlier, the first ever inscription of a biblical judge's name was just found recently and came to light and published just today. So uh, very little, very scant archeological evidence pre-King David's time period. 
post King David, post the United Monarchy, most are in agreement. Uh, and that's because Israel's neighbors have recorded their interactions and wars with Israel. Uh, and that's why there's post, there's extra biblical history, uh, extra biblical evidence, uh, just like the Teldon Stella is a, perfect, is a perfect example. But the ground zero of controversy, the battle that's raging today as we speak in the halls of academia in Israel and beyond is the period of King David and King Solomon. Who were they? And there's three opinions. Of course, the Bible says that they were a mighty and powerful kingdom. Uh, the biblical minimalists say that they were completely mythical. And uh, Finkelstein's theory says that they existed, but they were small time. And this is the battle that's raging as we speak. And uh, we're going to take a look now at some of the archaeological evidence that has come to light to try to gain insight. The focus of archaeology in Jerusalem has shifted to the city of David. And that's because the Temple Mount is off limits to archaeologists for various reasons. Uh, so this area here, it's a, it's a hill. Looks a lot different today. This is an aerial view that was taken uh, before excavations um, have begun in a more serious way. Roughly within this dotted outline, south of the, and a hill south of the Temple Mount, is the archaeologists um, believe with uh, incredible evidence to support them that the original Jerusalem, the ancient historic core, of Jerusalem began on this very hill right here. This is where the, the kings were seated. This is where the prophets roamed. And when King David captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites, this, this was the entire extent of the city. Um, the Temple Mount did not, was not part of Jerusalem yet at the time of King David. And King David renamed it, renamed the city of Jerusalem to the city of David. Uh, at some point in time, the city reverted back to its original name, Jerusalem. Uh, but, but this was the entire extent of the city. It was a city like every other city. It was a walled city. And eventually, the city expanded to the west and the north to include the entire, uh, the entire old city of Jerusalem, which is the, is the old city today. But the old city of Jerusalem, in its original uh, form, when King David captures a city, it was, was non-existent. By the way, just to get an idea here, who here has been to the city of David in Jerusalem? Give me a thumbs up if you've been to the city of David in Jerusalem. City, anybody here been to the city? Okay, we see a few thumbs up. I wish there were more because, you know, the city of David is literally the ancient historic core of Jerusalem. I see Jeffrey just joined and he's been to the city of David. Uh, it's, it's, if you visit Jerusalem and you don't visit the city of David, I'm sorry to say, but it's like visiting Orlando and not going to Disney World. So I'm, I'm just kidding. It's not exactly like that, but you get the idea. Um, you should definitely put it on top of your itinerary on your, your next visit to Jerusalem. All right, so let's take a look here. You can see the map of the city, of, where the city of David is located. This is the outline of the current old city walls of Jerusalem. Here is the Temple Mount uh, platform, the Temple Mount Plaza. And just highlighted here in green, you can see the city of David. It's just a small little area, roughly 10 to 12 acres in size. It wasn't very large as compared to Jerusalem's old city. 
And this was the entire extent of the city in King David's time period. And this is where the focus of excavations have been literally the probably the most excavated hill in the entire country of Israel. And probably one of the most excavated sites on, on, on earth because of his historic value. So let's take a look what the Bible tells us uh, about, uh, let, let's, let, sorry, let's now take a look at one of the most remarkable stories in Israeli archaeology, and that's the discovery of what is believed to be King David's palace in the city of David. So my friends, let's begin here with this aerial overview, this aerial view of, uh, partial view of the old city. Let me just get you oriented here. Uh, here we see the Temple Mount platform. It's really enormous. Uh, you see the Dome of the Rock. There's the, uh, the, 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 the Western Wall Prayer Plaza right here. This white area here is the, uh, the Mount of Olives, one of the most, the, the most ancient Jewish cemetery in Israel. Um, here you can see the outline of the old city wall. This is the Jewish quarter of the old city. That's the Muslim quarter. And you know, most, the, this is only a partial view of the old city. But we're gonna focus specifically on the area highlighted in red, as I pointed out earlier, which is the original ancient historic core of Jerusalem, which is even referred today as the city of David, uh, same name that King David named it when he conquered it from the Jebusites. Let's zero in on this area, specifically on the most Northern part of the city. What does the Bible tell us about King David's palace? Well, we look in the Bible and the Bible tells us that Hiram, the king of Tyre. Tyre is a city that still exists on coastal Lebanon. It's, it was the seat of the ancient Phoenicians who, who were a maritime people and Hiram was their king. And the Bible tells us that Hiram and King David had an alliance and eventually Hiram was the one that assisted King Solomon to build the first temple. So it says that Hiram, the king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons for the building of a wall, and they built a house for David. So the Bible tells us clearly that King Hiram, the Phoenicians were the ones to, that, were, that built King David's palace. They were the ones to go on to build King Solomon's palace. And of course, most importantly, the first temple on the Temple Mount. Let's introduce now uh, one of the most prominent archeologists in Israel, someone who has uh, made some of the most dazzling biblical archaeological discoveries in Jerusalem, and she was still at it. Well, unfortunately, she was cut short just, uh, just uh, a short, maybe uh, two months ago, when she uh, died um, at a young, young age in her 60s. Uh, her name is Elat Mazar, and she comes from a lineage of archaeologists in Israel. As a matter of fact, she was the granddaughter of a famous Israeli archaeologist, Benjamin Mazar, who was the one that first began to excavate the area surrounding the Temple Mount after 1967. He was also the president of the Hebrew University. She actually assisted her late grandfather uh, during uh, the Southern Wall excavations at the age of 11. Well, in 1997, Elab Mazar has done her homework. She has identified an area in the northern part of the city of David where she believes uh, King David's palace will be discovered. And she did her homework. She has found clues. She has found biblical clues. She has gathered evidence. 
and she laid it all out in an article she wrote in a, an archaeology magazine in 1997. And this is how the article begins, quote, a careful examination of the biblical text combined with sometimes unnoticed results of modern archaeological excavations in Jerusalem enable us, I believe, to locate the site of King David's palace. Even more exciting, it is an area that is now available for excavation. And then she goes on to say, if some regard as too speculative, the hypothesis I shall put forth in this article, my reply is simply this. Let us put it to the test, the way archaeologists always try to test their theories, by excavation. She challenged the archaeological community to allow her to excavate a, a, a piece of land in the northern extreme of the city of David, where she believes King David's palace can be unearthed. Now, uh, take a look here at this uh, map. You can see this is the, the Temple Mount. This area here highlighted was the excavation area that her grandfather has excavated. The area that she had proposed to excavate is not too far from where her grandfather excavated, the northern extreme of the city of David. <clears throat> One day, Doron Spillman, who is the um, director of development and the vice president of the City of David Foundation, sitting at his desk at the City of David. In walks Elat Mazar, and Elat Mazar places a photo down on Doron's desk. And he says, she says, Doron, do you recognize this woman? Why, of course, says Doron. This was uh, British, a British archaeologist, Kathleen Kenyon, uh, who was the one who has been hired by the Jordanians to excavate the city of David in the early 1960s when the Jordanians were still in control of the city of David. She then places another photo on his desk and says, Doron, do you recognize this? Why, of course, says Doron, this Phoenician capital, or what is known also as an Ionic capital, has been unearthed by Kathleen Kenyon in the early 1960s on the eastern slopes of the city of David. As a matter of fact, it has become an iconic symbol in Israel. Why, it's right behind, it's in the back of every five shekel piece. You can see it right there. It's, it's become a, an iconic part of Israeli history. So what are you getting at, my dear Elat, says Doron? Doron says Elat, if you take a string and you pull it from your office towards the eastern slopes of the city of David, that's precisely where Kathleen Kenyon has unearthed this Phoenician capital. Okay, says Doron. And so, and so says, says uh, Elat, I believe that King David's palace is 25 feet under your desk. Are you kidding me, says Doron? I'm willing to give up my desk tomorrow for you to begin this, this, this project. This is incredible. But what, what led you to that conclusion? She said, well, simple. You see, you are sitting precisely where I believe King David's palace was located, which was used by successive kings until the last king of Judea and his palace was destroyed by the Babylonians when the first temple was destroyed. And this Phoenician capital, which must have originated from a royal structure, just simply rolled down the hill right from where you are, and that's where it was discovered. Great, I am sold, says Doran. What do we do? So Elat says, you know, 
we have the knowledge, we have the permits, but we're still missing one important ingredient. And can you guess what that is? Well, of course, what makes the world go round? Funding. We don't have the funding yet. So, you know, she, she laid out her thesis, she, she, she published it in a magazine, and she's now waiting for funding. And, you know, it wasn't that easy to get the funding. It actually took seven years until finally um, a, 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 finance, uh, a businessman from New York City uh, gave the initial half a million dollars in funding. In 1997, she wrote that article. In 2005, she gets the funding. Immediately, she begins an, excav an excavation. Six months into the excavation, Mazar made an announcement that reverberated around the world. And I still remember until today seeing that announcement on the front page cover of every major newspaper around the world. And when she made the announcement that I found King David's palace. Now, some of the most prominent archaeologists in Jerusalem reacted immediately. Um, this guy actually is a first cousin of, of uh, his name is Amichai Mazar, but you know he, he's a very prominent archaeologist in his own right. Something of a miracle, he says. Another great archaeologist says, this is the first major find associated with the 10th century BCE uh, that is extremely impressive. Um, another one says, something like this has never been found. Now, she has dubbed this find the large stone structure. This is the archaeological term for this finding because it was an, an immense, it was a very large structure. Now, take a look at this. Uh, the, the topography of the city of David is such <clears throat> that this is the lowest point of the city. This is the highest point. As you make your way towards the Temple Mount, you're going uphill. Now, if you were to build a palace, what part of the city would you build a palace in? The lowest point, the midpoint, or the highest point? Well, of course, uh, Noreen, you're absolutely right. It's the highest point because, you know, it's like an Acropolis. You want to you have the view of the entire city from your palace. And that was already one clue that she had that, that the palace must have been somewhere at the upper portion of the city. Media headlines, a debate of biblical proportions, the palace of King David or not. Magazine headlines, has the palace of King David or Solomon been found? And then we had this cover page story on the National Geographic. Was the kingdom of David and Solomon a glorious empire or just a little cow town? It depends on which archeologist you ask. The question I have now is a simple question. Archaeologists have been digging in the city of David since the late 19th century. You know, the city of David has only been discovered uh, roughly in the mid 19th century. Um, now we know for a fact that it is the ancient historic core of Jerusalem, but it has been, it's one of the most excavated sites in Israel. Why hasn't a massive structure the size of what Elat Mazar has uncovered, which is about 100 feet to one end to the other, why has it never been found in the city of David? The answer is they were looking in the wrong place. But what do you mean they were looking in the wrong place? Weren't they looking for, for King David's palace, presumably in the city of David? The answer is yes, they were. But until now, excavations took place within what they believe was the city perimeter. But nothing has been found within the city perimeter. And if King David had built his palace within the city perimeter, it must have been a really small palace because there wasn't much space 
in a, in a, in a small city the size of 10 to 12 acres, which led Mazar to the conclusion that the palace must have been built outside the city. Now, that's what I call thinking outside the city. You see here in this uh, diagram here, you see this is the city uh, perimeter. And here King David says, you know, I want to build a palace, but the palace that I want to build is going to be a grand palace. And there is simply no room within the city perimeter to build my palace. So he builds his palace outside the city. Initially, it was outside the city walls. Now we're going to I'm going to show you a, a biblical clue. And I think this is pretty fascinating because this is what gave her like the, this was a final nail for Mazar to, to uh, nail this to, to the, the final nail in, in the nailing down where King David's palace can be found. So who are the ancient nemesis of the, of the Jews and the Israelites in the times of King David? You ask anyone who studied Bible, they would tell you it was the Philistines, right? The Philistines, uh, constant thorn on the side of the Jews. But you know, the Philistines, when they heard that King David moves his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem, and in the process, he kicked out the Jebusites, who were a mighty people, and he moves his capital to Jerusalem. They said, uh-uh, we're not going to let this guy get away with this. And they decided to go to war against King David. And this is what the Bible tells us. When David heard that the Philistines went on the attack, he, quote, descended to the fortress. Now, my friends. When you read this biblical verse, does this mean anything to you? Do you pay attention to this? We just move on to the next verse. You know, Mazar, a student of history and the Bible, she's looking for clues between the lines. She has, she reads this biblical verse and she has a number of questions. She's, she wants to know, A, what fortress are we talking about? B, where was King David when he descended to the fortress? C, why did King David descend to the fortress? Well, the answer to those questions a, where was King David? Presumably he was in his home, in his palace. What fortress are we talking about? We're talking about what was known as the Fortress of Zion, which is the Bible describes the fortress that the Jebusites have built that defended Jerusalem, which King David had captured. Now, the why did King David descend from his palace to Jerusalem? Let's bring up the image we had before. Because if, if, if the Philistines were coming to war against, against King David, where would King David rather be in time of war? In his palace or in the city? In the fortress, which is right here. Well, of course, the fortress is uh, fortified with the city walls. The palace at this point was still outside the city walls. So King David descends from his palace to the fortress. Now, the fact that it says descends, that's the key word here. He descended from the palace to the fortress. What does that tell us? is that the palace was up the hill from the fortress. Remember I told you before, the topography of the city of David was such that as you're moving northward towards the Temple Mount, you're going up the hill. As you're going, so this would be up the hill, this would be down the hill, right? Now, why is this important? Why am I sharing this with you? Well, Mazar has some information that was known to scholars, and that is that this massive structure, which is the largest Iron Age structure in Israel, and it's known as the stepstone structure dating back to King, uh, pre-King David's time period. It is about 60 feet in height. You can see a person sitting here. This was during the excavations. Now it's off limits to people. But 
most scholars believe that this structure supported none other than the fortress of Zion. Now, let me go back to the image I had earlier. If this is where the fortress of Zion was located, where would you go looking for the palace? Up the hill to the right or down the hill to the left? Well, obviously, if King David descended from the palace to the fortress, then the palace would have been up the hill to the right. And my friends, you get, Mazar knows that the palace is somewhere very close to this area right here. This is what supported the, the fortress, which was a monumental structure. And this was some sort of like a buttress to support that. The, the, you can see the, the slope here is very steep here. So this is where she went looking for the palace. Here is the stepstone structure just north, just slightly north of, of this structure underneath the City of David Visitors Plaza is where Mazar is looking for the palace. This is where excavation took place. My friends, this photo was taken in, 19, in 2006. When I visited the City of David in 2006, I actually climbed up these steps here and I poked, my, I poked into this area here and I saw the excavation in progress, but I had no idea what Mazar was excavating at the time. And it, um, I then later found out that she believes that she has uncovered King David's palace. And she has four clues. And let me reiterate what her four clues were. Number one, remember the Phoenician capital, which she um, pointed out to Doron Spillman. That was found just right below on the, in the valley. It rolled down from this area and it was unearthed to, uh, uh, 2,600 years after it was destroyed. Number two, the topography. Remember we said that this is the lowest point, this is the highest point. So you, the palace would have been somewhere in the highest point. Number three, built outside the city walls. So they, they, the archeologists have a rough idea where the city perimeter, the Northern perimeter was. So she figures it must've been right outside the city walls. Number four, the biblical clue suggests that it was just North of the fortress of Zion. So there you have it. And here is Mazar's uncovering the large stone structure here we see what it is. Here's a close-up view and you can see a, a person standing here to give you a scale of how large of a structure this is. Just to give you an idea, some of these walls were 15 feet thick. It was a massive structure that she had uncovered. And here's the uh, plan of what she has uncovered. Most of the structure unfortunately could not be uncovered. Uh, only about 20% was uncovered. From this point to this point is about hundred feet uh, in length. Now, how did exactly did she date this to King David's time period? But you know, when you date something, there are two methods. There's what's called uh, relative chronology, which is a less precise method. So let's say you have pottery and you know, every period of time had a different type of pottery. You can identify a period based on the type of pottery because pottery keeps changing. So if you find pottery and that pottery matches other pottery from the 10th century BCE that has been identified with that period, then you can make that connection. That's a less precise connection. A more precise connection is carbon dating, of course. Let's say you find an olive pit uh, that uh, can be dated to a time period. Uh, that is a more precise dating. Now, Mazar claims that she has find, she, she had found pottery, matching 10th century pottery, and also bones that have been carbon dated. So here you have um, a Hungarian uh, artist, by the name of Balaj, who likes to depict the biblical scenes based on archaeological findings. Uh, and here he depicts uh, King David looking out from the balcony of his palace. Um, and you can see the Phoenician capital, as you see, because the Phoenicians were the ones that built King David's palace. And these, it's, a, it's, it's actually a capital which tops a column, a uh, decorative element. 
And from this, because this was built in the northern part of the city up the hill, so he's got a view of the entire city. What else? Uh, they, she also found this, which is incredible. Signs of royalty, carved ivory in this structure, a red juglet from Cyprus. These are not items that are typically found in regular homes. This, this reinforces the idea that this was a royal structure. Now, when you visit this, the city of David today, your first stop on the tour of the city of David is actually the large stone structure as you, you descend down the staircase from, this is the city of David visitors entrance plaza above, and this is sort of below. And you're looking at this massive structure. Uh, now your tour guide will not tell you that this is King David's palace. What he or she will tell you is this is uh, most likely or a probable candidate for King David's palace. There is no way to state in, with, with complete certainty that this is King David's palace, but nevertheless, it does date back to King David's time period. And it is a royal structure with royal signs and it is simply the best candidate. Then there hasn't been another credible suggestion as to who has built this structure. Now, how did Finkelstein react to this discovery? Well, Finkelstein's initial reaction was messianic eruptions of biblical archeology. span I, I don't buy this. He then went ahead and dated the structure to the ninth century BCE because of his low chronology theory. And even with the carbon dating, you know, carbon dating is scientifically cannot be that precise. There's always a margin of error of 50, of 50 to 100 years plus and minus. So he says, look, even if you date something to King David's time period, you can't date it specifically to a specific year. There's a plus and minus. So I, I move it 70 years later and scientifically you can't argue with that. But he did concede that Jerusalem is more important, important than earlier thought. And then he said this, unless you find an inscription, not written last week that says, my name is David and I ruled from Damascus to the Nile, it would be hard to convince me. Even that wouldn't be enough unless it was accompanied by other evidence. In another place, he said, unless you find the dedication plaque for this structure that says, I, David, the son of Jesse, have built a structure, you will not convince me. And my friends, that plaque will probably never be found. But the, the, the reason why this discovery is a game changer, an absolute game changer, is because for the first time in history, a massive structure that was uh, found dating back to King David's general time period has been unearthed in Jerusalem, which literally blows out of the water the Jerusalem small cow town hypothesis because a Bedouin chief could not have envisioned a massive complicated structure, the likes of which Mazar says, this was an, a, a, a difficult engineering feat to, to build a massive structure like this. This is not, a, a, this is not for the likes of a, a, a Bedouin chief of a small cow town. This for the first time proves that someone in King David's time period had a vision and had uh, the vision of, of someone who was leading an empire. So that's why this is an absolute game changer in biblical archeology. span Let's now conclude with this section. Uh, we're gonna fast forward now. Uh, and this is one of the most exciting parts of biblical archeology, span hands down. And this is the bulla. Now, what exactly is bulla? Bulla is a Greek term. It means, uh, 
a, a clay seal impression. So it used to be that if you wanted to seal a document, uh, you would take a piece, soft piece of clay, you would put the imprint of your uh, signet ring, uh, had your name on it, typically name and father's name, and you would imprint it on this soft piece of clay, roll up the papyrus document, tie it up with a string, and seal it with this piece of clay. It was essentially like in modern day lingo, password protected. And uh, you know, no one had permission to open this document unless you open it or gave permission. Now, this was not done for every document. This was done typically for important sensitive documents. Uh, like for example, the Royal Archive would have had documents that were sealed with these uh, seals, these clay seals. Now, this is an example. We're looking here at a clay seal uh, picture right here. Uh, with an inscription on it that had a name, typically a name and a father's name. Uh, could have also said the location where you came from. Now, what happens is that if there is a fire, the document will be destroyed. But the, 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 the clay seal impression, the bulla, can survive because the, the fire actually hardens it. And under the right conditions, it can survive for centuries. And this, my friends, is some of the most exciting finds that have turned up in Israel have been these bullas with direct links to the Bible. So let, I'm going to conclude now with an episode, which is very much related to the time period that we're in. And this is an absolutely um, incredible story. So uh, this is going to be our last, uh, this is going to be our grand finale. Jerusalem, under the leadership of the final king of Judea, a man by the name of Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is now looking at his city, and the city is surrounded by a siege, a Babylonian siege. And the king recognizes that his city is doomed to destruction because he is outnumbered and he is outgunned. And it seems that all hope is lost. But there is one final hope, and that is in the form of the great prophet Jeremiah. The king summons his four trusted ministers and says to them, my dear ministers, I want you to go to Jeremiah the prophet with a simple request. Ask him to pray for the welfare of Jerusalem because all hope has been lost and he's the only one that can save us from this calamity. So we look at um, this exchange between King Zedekiah and the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 37. And King Zedekiah sent ministers to Jeremiah the prophet saying, pray now for us to the Lord our God. The prophet says to these, what the prophet replied to these, uh, to these uh, ministers came to them as a complete shock. They couldn't believe their ears. The prophet said to them, my dear ministers, listen to me. The Jerusalem is doomed to destruction. There's nothing that can be done now. It's too late. I've been shouting from the rooftops to repent. It's fallen on deaf ears. Now take my advice. Surrender to the Babylonians and save your lives. These ministers could not believe that this prophet was treasonous. He was suggesting surrender to the enemy? That's unheard of. They go back to the, to, uh, the king, the, the, the Bible tells us, and the officers said to the king, this man, Jeremiah, should be put to death now. Since he weakens the hands of the men of war remaining in the city and the hands of all the people to speak to them such words, for this man does not seek the welfare of his people, but harm. And the king said to the, his, his ministers, you are absolutely right. 
You can do to Jeremiah what you want. You can have him put to death. The man is uh, treasonous. They took Jeremiah and they threw him into the infamous Jeremiah's pit where he was to languish until he died. Were it not for a kind servant of the king who dragged Jeremiah out of the pit and eventually Jeremiah survived and a short while later witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem just as he had prophesied and was eventually taken to Babylonia where he joined his brethren in exile. My friends, who were these ministers who suggested that Jeremiah be put to death? The Bible tells us their names. Yehuchal, the son of Shelemiah. There were four of them. Shaphatia, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashkur, and Pashkur, the son of Malkia. Fast forward 2,600 years. A Lapmazar is uncovering what she believes is King David's palace. One of the captains of her team of excavation notices something glinting in the sand as the sun was setting. He picks up what he recognizes as a bullock. He, hands, he rushes over to Elatmazar, hands the bullet to her, and she rushes home. And she describes that she sat down together with her children. She places the bullet on her desk, opens up the lamp, and using a magnifying glass, she begins to decipher the, the ancient Hebrew words one by one using a special chart that her, her, hus her deceased husband, who was a, an epigraphist, who was an expert in deciphering ancient Hebrew script, had left behind. And she, when she completes the, the, the name on the bulla, she doesn't, she doesn't recognize it. But she doesn't give up. She goes to uh, uh, Biblical Encyclopedia, and she looks up that name. And sure enough, the name appears. And it points to none other than chapter 37 in Jeremiah. And the name was none other than Yehuchal, the son of Shelemiah. Yehuchal, uh, this, this, the son of Shelemia, the son of Shavi. It actually says his name, his father's name, and his grandfather's name. My friends, it gets better. Three years after she found that first bulla, three, three feet meters apart from the original bulla, she finds a second one. This one had the name of a second minister in Zedekiah's court mentioned in the same verse as the first one. And his name was Gedalia, the son of Pashkur. Now I have a simple question to ask you. Why were these bullas found right where they were found? The answer is simple. These were royal ministers. This was most likely the site of the royal archive. Because as I mentioned to you earlier, these bullas were used to seal important documents. And this reinforces the idea that this was the very site of King David's and successive king's palaces. Let's watch the short video clip about the bulla. It looks small, doesn't it? But a small object like this was one of the most exciting archaeological findings discovered in Jerusalem. This finding was the imprint of a seal, a bulla, of a man called Gemariahu ben Shafan a man whose name is cited in the book of Jeremiah as the king's scribe. Gemariahu's bula was discovered right here with many others and caused great excitement. 25 years later, the imprint of another seal was found up there. When the scholars deciphered it, they were surprised to find another name known from the Bible, Yehochal, 
sound of Shalamyahu. This special finding reinforced the assumption that the palace area was close by, perhaps above this retaining wall. The king's scribes, and maybe even the kings themselves, might have passed not far from here. Maybe King Hezekiah leaned on this wall, and just maybe Prophet Jeremiah walked across this floor, and just maybe King David slung this stone from his slingshot. Because in the city of David, even the smallest stone has a story to tell. That's the uh, stepstone structure behind him. And actually the last statement he made was just a slight exaggeration because of course, King David slew Goliath <clears throat> about 23 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem in a place called the Ella Valley, which is south of Beit Shemesh. But the point he's trying to make is that every stone in the city of David has a story to tell. And my friends, we're gonna conclude now with another small bonus before we close out. Uh, and I see Rabbi Ari is already waiting in the wings, uh, but I, I, I could not finish off without showing you another top 10 biblical archeological discovery made by a Lat Mazar, two of them actually, uh, in recent years, uh, as I mentioned, the queen of archeology. span Number one is another bulla which is the first time ever a biblical king, a very famous biblical king's bulla, his own personal seal, was discovered in Jerusalem. And here you see King Hezekiah, and it says in ancient Hebrew, it says, Chizkiah, uh, king of Judah. Chizkiah uh, ben Achaz, Chizkiah, the son of Achaz, king of Judah. And my friends, the second bulla that she has uncovered which is only about three meters apart from the first one, not, not too far from a Temple Mount, between the city of David and the Temple Mount, she found this one. Yep, the, the one and only prophet Isaiah. And it says here, Yeshaya Navi, Hanavi. Now you notice a little bit, you notice that question mark there. That's because scholars have uh, debated because the second line here says Navi, but the Aleph of Navi, Navi means a prophet. The Aleph is missing. It hasn't been stamped on properly. And, and this, this way, it's possible that Navi means coming from the city of Nov. So it's possible it was another Isaiah. But most likely, it is the, the famous prophet Isaiah because it was found in close proximity to King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah's prof prophet and advisor was the prophet Isaiah. So there it is, my friends. Points to ponder. Every word in the Torah has historic value. How much more so moral value? A simple reading of a verse gave Elat Mazar the final nail to where she believes she can discover King David's palace. We don't lead our lives based on physical evidence. There is no physical evidence of God. Even if we were to have no evidence of the biblical history, we would still believe in the Bible. Nevertheless, physical evidence is an added bonus and strengthens our faith. And finally, those who don't believe won't easily change their mind. Thank you so much. Uh, we do have something, if you want to close out a one-minute video of City of David in 3D, do you want to do that? Or we could do it at the end. Up to you. Go ahead. Here we um, go. Yeah, so if, if, if it's okay, let's do it. Yeah.
Empress of Zion? We exit the forces of Zion and come face to face with King David's palace built outside the city. by the Phoenicians. All right, thank you so much, everyone. I bring, I give it back to Rabbi Ari. Wow, that was mag absolutely magnificent. Rabbi, thank you so much. Um, uh, do you have time for a few minutes of Q&A? Absolutely. Okay, fantastic, beautiful. I know we have some questions in the chat. I know some of you have questions to ask uh, personally to, uh, to Rabbi Stalik. Um, I, I just wanna speak for myself. That was absolutely incredible. And one thing that you said at the end got my memory going. If I'm not, you showed the two, um, the two seals one of Hezekiah and one possibly, probably of Isaiah, if I'm not mistaken, they were mishpacha. If I'm not mistaken, they were family because- You're Absolutely Hez right, Rabbi. Hezekiah married Isaiah's daughter. You know your Bible. You're absolutely so right. He was his father. So basically the prophet Isaiah was Hezekiah's father-in-law. So maybe their seals were hanging out uh, together over Thanksgiving I mean, dinner or something. Most scholars believe that it is most likely the famous prophet Isaiah's personal seal. Amazing. Okay, let's uh, let's throw it open to some questions. Um, I saw um, Dr. Maxi raise her hand. Doctor, jump in. Joy, did you have a okay, no? Okay. No. No. Okay. Um, Richard, jump in. Yeah, I think your mom just asked the question I wanted to ask about. Uh, uh, this seems to be, um, I, I missed most of, your, most of your presentation. I'm sorry, I was as busy as you others, and so I, I may be repeating, but it seems like there is a, uh, a 50, 60 year uh, thrust to undermine every institution here in America. Uh, and it seems like the pinpointing of, of Israel and Judaism's history is just the canary in the mine shaft that this is not a conspiracy theory. It seems like everything Western or Judaic seems to be undermined and it certainly seems to be focusing on Israel. And the question that, that Rabbi's mom asked about how, how is this reacted to in the non-Jewish world of non-Jews, even Muslims, if you deny David and, and part of the history, you're denying several major faiths. What, what, what are they standing up to? It seems like every institution, which means anything to us, is being undermined. And that's just my own personal view. You can comment or not comment on that. But is there, is there, a, re, is there a reaction in the non-Jewish world to this, um, I can't even think of the word, this blasphemy? So, good question. So the, uh, the non-Jewish world is, is mixed on this. Um, uh, you have from one extreme, you got you got the uh, evangelicals on the on the one extreme, 
who believe, you know, very much in, in the Bible. Uh, you have these uh, European, um, I guess, free thinkers, uh, biblical minimalists, who are the other extreme. Uh, the the bad news for these um, uh, biblical minimalists, as we have seen in this presentation, is that uh, they are being marginalized. And the more archaeology is being uncovered in Israel, the more they are having to defend themselves. So it's actually only it's only working in one direction, and that's why Israel is so feverishly engaged in archaeology and, and searching for clues of their past, probably more than any other country on earth, uh, because uh, you know their very legitimacy is constantly being challenged. So they're looking for clues to prove to the world that we we are not interlopers and colonists, but we actually are indigenous people here. I think if you undermine uh, Israel and the Bible, you can undermine all of Western civilization. You're absolutely right. I think the biggest I, question I, that we have is not how the non-Jews react to this, but how some of the Jewish elements are reacting to this, because a lot of the criticism is actually coming from Jews, even within Israel. As Torquemada was a Jew, if I'm not Professor mistaken. Finkelstein, uh, leading, leading that, that, uh, that group, um, there is apparently... Uh, you know, when it comes to King David specifically, King David and King Solomon, uh, this is the crux of where the controversy is taking place. Because, you know, Israel, Jerusalem being the capital of Israel, who established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? But King David. Uh, this has very, this plays very much into the political uh, current situation where is Jerusalem Israel's capital or not? You know, there's, there's a lot that goes on. It's a hot potato. So, um, there are, there are some people that just have a hard time believing that there was ever a King David, the likes of which we know from the Bible. The one that probably if you would ask an average person on the street, who is this, the second most uh, popular biblical character? I would say maybe after Moses would be King David. And just some people have a hard time accepting that. All right. Thank you. you thank you. Questions? Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Any more questions? Let's see. My mom is asking that what is called Migdal David is not connected to David. Is Migdal David connected to King David? Okay. Yeah. Your mom makes actually a great, uh, a true point that there, when it comes to Jerusalem, there's a lot of misnomers. Uh, I'll give you some examples. Uh, the example of the Tower of David, which has become like the iconic symbol of Jerusalem. It's got nothing to do with King David. As a matter of fact, uh, right now it's just a minaret, which is a Muslim addition, but it's, uh, it was originally built by the Hasmoneans, later rebuilt by Herod, King Herod, uh, into this magnificent fortress, par portions of which we can see today. And uh, it was later rebuilt after the, the, the Romans destroyed it in, in roughly this time period. Uh, it was later rebuilt to what it is as, uh, by the Muslims. Another misnomer is Solomon's Stables. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, that concept in the Temple Mount, which is a whole separate presentation that I do called Holy Trash, uh, a fascinating presentation. Uh, it has nothing to do with King Solomon. Um, there are a few more, just right now I'm trying to think what they are, but there's a, lot, there's a lot of misnomers when it comes to Jerusalem. 
Um, you said you mentioned the presentation called Holy Trash. I don't think you've ever done that for us. So it looks like we have next year's presentation squared away. Oh, wow. <laughs> Save the date. Um, all right. Any questions? Uh, I, I know I have a few, but I want to give opportunities. We probably only have just a few more minutes over here. Does anybody want to just unmute and jump in with questions? Do you have a question? Jump it, in, jump is in. Is there anything in Roman history which can validate uh, Israel's existence? I mean, the, the, the ties between Rome and Greece and Israel is... is yes. Point is yes. Huge. Can, can uh, they validate Israel's existence? Uh, and, and yes. Uh, the, the, answer, the answer to that is right behind me, at least virtually. Uh, you look at the Western Wall. The Western Wall was built by a, a Roman uh, figurehead whose name was King Herod. Uh, and Herod was the one that rebuilt the second temple beginning of the year 19 uh, before the common era. And uh, this wall, be, which was a, one of the, uh, we saw last week, last year we spoke about this, uh, some of the most amazing piece of construction in all of history. Uh, this is from the Roman period. And there are other dis discoveries that were excavated and found that primarily dates from this Roman period of Jerusalem. Beautiful. I want to ask a, a, a question that I've had. Um, since you mentioned, I forget the fellow's name, Jewish, Israeli archaeologist, who essentially said, you brought him up a few times, and he, he essentially said, unless you find something that says this is the, you know, this is, this was built by David, I don't believe it. Um, why do you think, I know Richard was trying to, you know, get to, you know, an angle on it, but why do you think an academic, an archaeologist, a Jew, an Israeli might have such a an opposition to it's almost like, you know, Occam's razor. The simplest answer is the simplest answer is usually true. Why such a opposition to it's in the Bible? There is historical evidence. There are artifacts. Why the pushback? You know, I I can't really answer for him, but but it's not just him, by the way, he's just a figurehead, but there's a whole school that kind of follows this, this thought. Uh, it's mostly Tel Aviv versus Hebrew University of Jerusalem. It's like a big color war. Um, and um, Tel Aviv is mostly taking the side of a more critical side. Although I will say that in recent years, the Tel Aviv University Archaeology Department wanted to get in on the action of the City of David because they said, you know, we were standing on the sidelines all these years, and this is where all these incredible discoveries are being made. We want a piece of the action. So Finkelstein didn't get in that, but some of his underlings are now excavating the, those areas. But um, I, Finkelstein was once asked uh, if he celebrates Passover because he doesn't believe in the exodus from Egypt. Uh, he said he does. And when he was asked why, he said because of the cultural aspect. Um, I don't know why he throws dirt on everything, I'm using the part in the pun, uh, he throws dirt on everything that is found that has any connection to the Bible. I think it's just a certain uh, type of um, where people, it used to be the accepted view of archeology span uh, back in the 19th century was the, I, the Bible on one hand and the pickaxe on the other. It was as if you were trying to validate the Bible uh, by holding the Bible in front of you. That has fallen out of favor with archeology. It, it is now frowned upon. You have to look at it strictly through a scientific lens. It happens to be that Elat Mazar is a secular, was a secular Israeli, uh, but nevertheless, she looked at the Bible as 
historic value. It's not something that should be shunned. Uh, not that she was a believer necessarily or a she didn't practice, but she said the Bible has legitimate history and it should not be shunned. Uh, some people just have a hard time accepting the Bible on face value and they'll do whatever it takes to just um, throw you onto the defensive. Got it. All right. Final question. Um, the question is, are Mazar's children archaeologists too? Is it still in the family? Good question. I, I, I hope they are because that family has really contributed enormously to the archaeological record. And, and Mazar, I mean, some of the stuff that she has found, she, she has made a discovery. In addition to what we showed tonight, uh, uh, one of the dazzling discoveries she made was uh, a golden necklace that had uh, like an image of a Torah on it and a menorah and a chauffeur, all three with a, with a cachet of like shiny coins that, were, that dates back from the, from the Byzantine era when Jews apparently hid it somewhere under, under a floor uh, as the uh, Persians were coming for, for battle and they, they figured they'll come back and retrieve it, but unfortunately they never did. Uh, and she, she, she it, it, I, I, I hope that her children will continue her work because there's a lot of unfinished business. Amazing. Rabbi, we're going to let you go. This was amazing. I learned so much and I'm sure everyone here just learned a tremendous amount. Um, may Hashem continue to give you the strength and the wisdom to continue doing what you're doing and just sharing this beautiful wisdom and, and discoveries with, uh, with all of us and uh, to all of us. Um, we're in the nine days. Uh, we're in the days preceding the ninth of Av. May we very soon celebrate the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple with the coming of Mashiach. May be speed in our days. And then we won't have to fast on the ninth of Av. And we'll celebrate together, reunited with our loved ones. And let us say, Amen. All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi Ari, for having me on again. Uh, to bring me out to your community. You have a wonderful community. They are very knowledgeable. And I wish you all the success and may these days of mourning be transformed into days of joy and celebration with the coming of Mashiach. Thank you so much. Next year in Jerusalem. Amen. Thank you. And thanks and good night to everybody. Take care.